Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. We're excited to have Patricia Angus from the Angus Advisory Group joining us today. Patricia, welcome. Thanks so much for participating. Thanks, Arden. Glad to be here today. Well, I'm going to start off by reading your bio. It is very extensive, so I don't want to get anything incorrect. So Patricia is a lawyer and the founder and CEO of Angus Advisory Group. She's also an adjunct professor um, and the founding managing director of the Global Family Enterprise Program and faculty director of Enterprising Families Executive Education at Columbia University's Graduate School of Business. That is a mouthful. <laughs> uh, for over 25 <laughs> years, it is. It is. Uh, Patricia has provided legal and strategic advice to global families and firms with multi-generational businesses, trusts, and philanthropy. She's been in multiple publications, um, including the Beneficiary Primer, a guide for beneficiaries and family trusts, and the Trustee Primer, a guide for personal trustees. She served on multiple advisory boards, including Trust in Estates and the Carter Center. Um, and she's a fellow and faculty member for FFI and has multiple advanced certifications and awards. Um, she graduated from Columbia University uh, School International and Public of International and Public Affairs, uh, the George Washington University School of Law. Um, welcome, Patricia. Great background. And I'd love for you to tell our listeners and the, those who are watching the podcast a little bit about your work at Angus Advisory Group group? Um, so uh, what do I do? I've been working with families since the early 90s in almost every capacity, as you just read, as a lawyer, as a teacher, as a consultant. Uh, Angus Advisory Group is uh, was probably one of the first virtual uh, consulting companies focused on family enterprise. I bring in experts as needed. I lead all consulting engagements, and I work with families who have multi-generational businesses, trusts, and foundations to think strategically across all generations, across all assets, and to help families work better together and better for the world around us really noble mission to be doing that with families and i know you've supported them very successfully for long periods of time you know, as you know our work at o'connor professional group surrounds around helping families with mental health and addiction issues you know how do you think about planning in a family system if one of these issues is present it's complicated uh i think first of all you have to um separate planning from living planning from administering planning from just being and i think if you're uh planning you know if you're doing financial planning estate planning trust planning taking into account the reality often uh, advisors lawyers uh consultants assume that all family 
have family members who are equally healthy, equally educated, equally competent. And when you have a substance abuse or a mental health issue, you have someone who has some challenges that may be different from other members of the family. There may be more than one member of the family in the same situation. Uh, but be very careful about sitting down and just writing documents. I think it applies whether you have families with uh, family members with mental health, substance abuse or not. The way that I like to think about it is, you know, your plan should be something that people can live with, that you can live with, and something that you should communicate as you are creating it, if you can, if the family members are, are uh, competent in a way that can have that conversation with you. Um, but it's, it is especially complicated if you have somebody who has mental health or substance abuse. I would be very careful about uh, planning provisions that would uh, distribute assets outright. Um, as we all know, um, not everybody can manage their own money and um, having somebody else like a trustee put in to manage the financial affairs for somebody who has a mental health issue or, or a substance abuse issue uh, is very important. Granted, you're the expert, Arden. I'm not on the range of mental health issues that could be out there. And so being... Um, you know, careful about who you put in and making sure that the people you put into those positions know how to get outside expertise, know how to understand the context and know, say, if you are a trustee of somebody with a mental health issue, find out what will harm and what will help. I think of mental health and substance abuse a bit differently. Um, there's some really great, great language that clients of mine have put into uh, their trusts and their wills and have advised their uh, trustees on who to rely on, how to rely on it, and how to make sure that you're going to help somebody and not hurt them with whatever you've left behind. Um, and, you know, with all things, just the worst thing you could do is just write a document and put it in a drawer. Uh, the best thing you could do is start having communication about it earlier on. Do you think the average advisor is equipped to sort of manage cases like this? And what are some of the issues advisors face when dealing with clients with substance use or mental health issues? Well, of course, there are no average advisors. You know, think of Garrison Keillor. Every, every advisor is smarter than the rest, better than the rest, and will only do the uh, best planning and implementation for their client. Uh, but, you know, uh, advisors, look, if you're trained to be a lawyer, you're not trained to be a psychologist. And if you're in trust and estates, and if that is your job to help people uh, plan for what happens after their lifetime, I would say it behooves you if it's not required that you actually get some psychological training on the side. And that's part of what, uh, you know, I've transitioned out. I don't practice law. I haven't practiced law in a very long time because I found that there was a need in the field for people who were not doing the technical legal work, but were doing the um, sort of facilitation of advisors and the facilitation between the family and perhaps their family office. Uh, so that, um, you know, advisors who know how to develop a multidisciplinary team, who need to, who know how to work with uh, other professionals and respect other professionals is critical. So, you know, it sounds far-fetched, but I started out in international law. And what I learned early on was that the best international lawyers knew not only their own law, but how to bring in other people who were experts elsewhere. And I would say that any advisor who wants to be the Garrison Keillor better than everybody else knows how to bring in other experts and gets enough expertise, uh, gets enough education on their own uh, to identify the issues as well. What information do you think is important for families to share as somebody is laying out an estate plan? 
Yeah. And as I said, it's I'm in a wonderful position now, not being the lawyer, working with families who um, have their own lawyers or if not, I help them find them. Um, I'm spending a lot more time lately thinking about the preparation part. And I, I think the most important thing you need to do before you go to your lawyer, your accountant, your wealth manager to talk about your estate plan is soul searching. It might be sort of heavy for a podcast, but think about your values, think about your goals, think about what the messages are that you want to leave behind. You know, we all leave a legacy. It's a fallacy to think that only rich people leave a legacy. And the only way to leave a legacy is to give money or to, um, you know, leave, leave something in your will or your trust. You're going to leave a legacy. What do you want it to be? Um, so having that conversation with yourself is very important. And then as a practical matter, do your own part of the job and then let the advisors do their part of the job. I'm a big fan of having the family create almost a term sheet that says these are my values, these are my goals, and then attached to it have an estate planning balance sheet. Every asset that you own, every liability that you uh, know of. So you come prepared with the information your advisor is going to need and you also remember that you can delegate the drafting of the documents. You can delegate the legal research because, you know, God forbid, we all think uh, we know the law. I wouldn't. I wouldn't write a will today because I haven't been a lawyer for, you know, maybe twenty years or so. I haven't practiced, um, but uh, I know what my values are. I know what I want to accomplish. I know who I am, and that you cannot delegate. You cannot leave it to somebody else to make those decisions for you. You can't ask your lawyer to make a decision on how to divide things between your children. Only you know how you really want to do that. And I think that gets confused because honestly, it's pretty scary. You know, I, I worked a while back and somebody said, oh, we always know when our clients are going to their lawyer. They look really scared. I had a client who was shaking in the lawyer's office once when I was sitting, I, I get to sit on the client side of the table and I was sitting on her side of the table and she was literally shaking. She was so intimidated. You're talking about mortality. You're talking about technical issues people don't understand. And you're um, talking about a time when you're not going to be around. There's a lot of fear. So acknowledging the emotions is really important as well. And what do you do with the client? That's a great example of the client who's sitting there shaking in fear. What do you do in circumstances when maybe somebody hasn't thought through these issues? Either um, they haven't put much time into the prep. Do you tell them to go back and think about planning later or what tools can they use? Well, I um, think there's two timeframes to think about when you're doing an estate plan. One is, what if happened what if something happened to you today tonight would you feel comfortable with how your documents are written and what you have left to people you've got to do crisis triage get your estate plan in place knowing that you can change a will if you've done your trust that's uh, revocable you can change that at any time um, and uh, irrevocable trust you should be more careful about putting things in writing that you may not be comfortable with if it happened today but really do your triage that's your responsibility yeah, I, I taught a class last week at columbia where i uh, asked the students who were in their 30s many of whom had children. And I said, how many of you have children? A few raised their hands. I said, how many of you have wills? Nobody raised their hand. And I said, okay, at the end of this class, you've got to go get a lawyer and get a will in place because it's just not responsible parenthood to not take care of that. So that's the triage part. Then if you think about longer term, how do you prepare yourself really 
because of the emotional element, educate yourself. Part of the reason I wrote the two books that you mentioned was that so many people create wills and trusts uh, for family members and they don't understand as a trustee what their responsibility is and they don't understand as a beneficiary what, what has happened to them. So I think there's a lot of great educational tools out there now um, and I think we underestimate how much knowledge itself that's delivered in an empathic or em empathetic uh, way can go to relieving the emotional um, fear factor that you're talking about. And, and what about the circumstances when you're on the planning side and somebody withholds a critical piece of information? What are the ramifications of that? Uh, you know, I've done a lot of work with a lot of families and, you know, the withholding question, I not many people will withhold information if you treat them with respect and you treat them with empathy and if you listen. If you go through the process too fast, if you say, you know, this is how we do it for all other clients and you don't have a, a written questionnaire or an online questionnaire as well as a conversation with the right questions to ask, um, you might miss some information inadvertently. Um, so make sure that your process as a planner includes, uh, you know, covering all, all bases. Uh, but are there family members who may withhold information? Sure. I've worked with several families, this was 25 years ago or so, where um, they had extra family members that they hadn't told anybody about. They, uh, you know, I've, I've literally worked with the Middle East where there's more than one wife. I've worked with other countries where there's more than one family. Um, that can only lead to harm emotionally and financially and legally in the long run. So maybe it's not as extreme, maybe your question isn't as extreme as what if I have another family that my you know, family that I'm married to doesn't know about, that's one question. Um, you know, the found child is an issue. Uh, but what if you just don't wanna tell somebody about, you know, an asset they might not know about, or, um, you know, the way that you own some property that you inherited from your family that other uh, people aren't aware of. It doesn't help the plan, and um, what all you're doing is leaving the whoever's left behind to do the work that you could be doing yourself. I, you know, I'm thinking <laughs> in a case where you have a very private family who doesn't necessarily disclose that there's a genetic predisposition towards a mental illness or substance use, and there are signs, mm -hmm. even evidence that the person, one of their family members, is struggling with something, and they're not doing a lot of advanced planning around that. I mean, they, anecdotally, mm -hmm. what we've seen are many families are open if it's a, autism, a developmental disability, because there tends to be more of a sympathetic attitude towards those diagnoses. We have seen families, although it's changing to your point, and I think especially more recently with how much media attention is being paid to mental health and substance use. But I would say over the last 10 years, we certainly have seen families who either in are in denial themselves about how serious a problem is or are reluctant to bring it up to people other than their family physician or their therapist. They're not even thinking about the ramifications for their planning. And I... it hadn't really occurred to me that people would withhold that but now i understand uh sort of the challenge that especially if there's a family culture of not discussing these things so what i have learned to do as a consultant not as a lawyer as a consultant is 
in my intake process when I'm getting to know the family to figure out whether I'm appropriate for them and they're appropriate for me, I always ask, are there mental health issues in the family that I should know about? Is there something like that? And uh, you don't ask it at the beginning of the conversation, you ask it at the end of the conversation. And um, that often opens a door to a whole nother level of uh, conversation and ability to do the work that you can do. I've never had somebody not answer honestly when I've asked it that way. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great point. We are seeing, you know, we're, we're recommending that to any advisor attorney working with families, because if you don't ask the question, I don't always think it's intentional. I think some families are either so ashamed or they're not necessarily thinking about, thinking about it as an applicable issue in an estate planning process. So I think by having even that initial conversation or that initial question, and one that's applied to everyone, we're not signaling, you know, singling out your family because we think there's a problem. This is part of our onboarding process to understand for all the families we serve. I think it's just a way to normalize you know, the presence of these issues and the importance of dealing with them. Yeah, and that's how I approach it as well. Normalize it, no judgment. It's just a fact that I need to know uh, in order to help you. And honestly, if I have a client on the consulting side who does have, uh, you know, sort of a mental health issue that uh, really is not being well uh, uh, treated yet, then I will help them find the professionals to, to um to manage it or as, as best as they can identify, even if it's not yet diagnosed. You know, it's, I think there's a difference between diagnosed and not diagnosed. If it's diagnosed, I find people more open. If it's not diagnosed, they're sort of like, well, we're not sure, but, and then I, uh, that to me is a, is a sign that there's somebody else who needs to be involved in the engagement as well. Makes total sense. What are your thoughts about siblings serving as trustees for one another? And what have you seen as resulting dynamics from a situation like that? Yeah, yeah. So a sibling as a trustee of, a, of um, their sibling's trust. Um, I, actually, I actually haven't seen it that often. I think um, I see aunts, uncles, parents, I, I guess, yeah, maybe more frequently now, and especially with family-owned businesses. You know, I, I wrote a case on the uh, Pritzker family. Um, and um, in that case, I use it in class and I use it with clients to understand, you know, in, in that story, and it's sort of a long story because it goes over a hundred years. Um, in each generation, there is a patriarch that sort of handed things down to a patriarch that handed things down to a patriarch. And then by 1995, um, there were somebody who was sort of uh, still, you know, what we would have been a traditionally called patriarch. Um, and the, they and other members of the family named one member of the family to be trustee of about a thousand trusts. And so not only was he trustee of his uh, siblings trust, he was also trustee of the cousins, uh, uh, you know, interests. The way I would look at that is taking it broader who should be a trustee how do you choose the right trustee how do you prepare the right trustee and how do you have a trust that is working the best for both the beneficiary and the trustee once again that's why i wrote those books make sure that that trustee has the right qualifications or a combination of uh of qualifications to do what trustees have to do they have to do three basic things they have to administer invest 
and distribute the assets of the trust that they received from the grantor or settlor. Whether it's a sibling or not, not everybody is good at administration. You could sort of tell, you walk into somebody's office, is are papers all over the place? Do they have their files in order or not? Um, are they gonna file the tax returns on time? Are they going to get the title transferred to the assets that they've taken in or not? Um, should they be the administrator or not? Um, investment, is this sibling or anybody who's been named trustee qualified to be overseeing investing under the prudent investor rule? Um, and this is why a lot of families are now dividing up trusteeship between an administrative trustee and an investment trustee. And then at the third you know, category of what you have to do, you have to distribute. And distribution is where I would say the probably the most friction might occur between siblings. And in terms of distribution, there's two basic ways that trusts are written. There's uh, distributions that are automatic. You must receive income every year. You must receive income every quarter. You must receive one third of the principal at age 35, for example. Or it could be discretionary. And it might say the trustee gets to decide at any time to distribute or not to the beneficiary. That's where I think it would get most complicated between a sibling. And if it does become complicated, you really have to go back to basics. Does the beneficiary understand the terms of the trust do they understand the legal obligations that the trustee has? Do they understand the fiduciary responsibility and that the trustee is the legal owner and that the beneficiary has a right to hold them accountable for what's been written in the trust? Um, but more often than not, maybe in a sibling situation, it might even show up more, uh, you might find accusations of you're not distributing to me uh, when, even though I'm entitled and they haven't read the trust agreement. And if the trust says you're only entitled to get a distribution for education and you keep showing up saying, I want a new house and I want a new car and, you know, can't you pay me out for this? It's not about the sibling. It's about the trust agreement itself. And the more you can have people think in the roles as opposed to the relationship that they had before, very important. Don't do the conversations over social gatherings. Don't even do them over the phone. Meet in person yeah. at least once a year and have quarterly meetings. So it's just good trustee beneficiary processes to set in place. And the sibling part shouldn't be the most um, important factor in it. Great advice. I really like that. Well, I'm going to close with an uplifting question, hopefully. I know you do a lot of teaching and mentoring of young people, which I know in my career has been a source of yeah. excitement. What, what gets you energized about where the field is moving and the trends that you're seeing with young people who are getting into the planning side of supporting high net worth families? Um, what gets me excited is that we're not as siloed as we used to be. It used to be the lawyers did their work, the accountants did their work, the you know, wealth managers did their work and they weren't working as a team. So there's an awareness today that didn't exist when I was one of the people trying to create this integrated approach uh, that is just a given now. So you're going to have a more integrated approach. Um, the generational shift has pretty much occurred. You know, millennials are um, no longer the quote unquote next generation. They are the parents of the next generation. And I've never liked the term next gen because I think next gen was really, you know, um, the older generation's way of pointing responsibility to somebody other than themselves. So I think that we, I am seeing a trend in families where you're having more horizontal relationships where uh, because 
everyone's living longer. You have longer to work together almost as peers between uh, parent and child. That gets me excited. I think the focus on values of the younger family members, younger generations um, is interesting. I'm not seeing as much pushback as there used to be. Um, I remember 15 years ago going into an investment advisor saying, you know, my client wants to invest in, you know, socially responsible investing and the investment advisor just flat out refused. You don't find that anymore. Um, so I think that, that that's changing. So that, that gives me a lot of hope. Um, in a way, the fact that the younger generation that I see in my class they understand systems in a way that uh, prior people did not, uh, that, that older people did not. So being systemic thinkers, absolutely. The focus on climate change is a focus on something larger than yourself. And from my experience, any healthy family that has endured over time has had a sense that they are responsible to someone other than themselves. And I hope that this younger generation can keep pushing that forward. That if we don't look out for society, then what good is it to be a family of great financial wealth? What is financial wealth anyway, if you don't have a, you know, as, as one of my students said, you know, what good is the business if we don't have a planet to have a business in? So I think that gives me hope that people are, are really caring about the deeper issues. That's great. What a way to end. Thank you so much, Patricia, today for joining us. We appreciated hearing all about your experiences working with families and doing planning work. We're hopeful that many of the listeners of the podcast will check out the books that you've written. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.